So you get bonus points this morning if you uh, recognize which best-selling book is referenced in today's sermon title. Is anybody familiar with a book that starts out what to expect when you're expecting Messiah? Yeah. That book was published in the 1980s, um, and it's been revised multiple times over the decade, and I hear sales are still going strong because it turns out there are many people who are very interested in knowing what to expect from major life events, such as pregnancy, which that book is about. Our expectations profoundly shape our experiences and our understanding of our lives. As I know from decades of trying to follow Jesus myself, and more recently from my experience as a pastor working with other followers of Jesus, Our expectations about God and what our lives will look like if we follow him have an enormous impact on our faith and our relationship with God. Some folks spend years unlearning false ideas about God and relearning what to expect from him. In fact, one of my own first theological questions had to do with this very issue. I was probably about 10 years old or so, I remember being up in our attic for some reason, maybe rummaging for toys that my parents had put away up there. I remember stopping and wondering why it was that when something good happened, we were supposed to praise and thank God. But somehow, when the bad stuff happened, that wasn't his fault, we weren't supposed to blame him, and I was really trying to puzzle that through. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the first theological mystery I stumbled on on my own. I don't think that was addressed in Sunday school class at all. Um, But as I grew and really tried to understand um, the testimony of Scripture and how to apply that to my life, um, the question behind that question emerged. I could see in Scripture that Jesus himself suffered and that those who followed Jesus could also expect suffering. But what I still couldn't quite get a grip on was that if I couldn't trust Jesus to solve all my problems and help me to avoid the unpleasant stuff in my life, What was I supposed to trust him for? I believed in a powerful God who really loved me, but I was still not quite sure what to expect from him. He's the protector, but his children sometimes still get hurt. He's a provider, but his children sometimes are in need. So what does all that mean? What can we expect from God? Now, these were my earliest personal musings on what to expect. And if I'm honest, 40 years later, Those questions are not completely resolved. As a middle-aged, lifelong believer, I find these same questions bob to the surface whenever my little boat hits rough waters, when I'm frustrated, when I have a really tough decision to make, when I'm in pain or fearful or ill, when I'm in crisis of any sort, like the crisis Joseph is in. What's God going to do? Well, Jews at the time of Jesus had expectations about how God would intervene in their own lives as well. The Jewish Jewish prophets spoke over a period of hundreds of years about a special leader, a Messiah, who would restore Jerusalem and the Jewish people, both spiritually and politically, and establish a world government to enact the peace of God on earth. And this leader was specified in several prophecies as a descendant of King David, one anointed by God. Messiah simply means anointed one. And he would set things right on behalf of the Jewish people and would ultimately bring about universal peace. And in fact, when the baby Jesus grew up and began teaching and healing, 
a big buzz started building around him, and many people wondered if he was the long-expected Messiah. Ultimately, some people concluded he was indeed the Messiah. They found, in fact, that Jesus far exceeded their hopeful expectations, and their lives were revolutionized. Others, however, were ultimately disappointed with what Jesus was doing and how he was going about it, they concluded that Jesus was not the Messiah, and they went on to deposit their hope elsewhere. I think today's passage early in Matthew's Gospel is a great place to look for what to expect from the Messiah God promised. Matthew's job in the biography he wrote about Jesus was to persuade the world, and the Jewish people in particular, that this man Jesus was in fact the Messiah sent by God to deliver his people. Matthew was profoundly uh, familiar with the scriptures we refer to now as the Old Testament, and he saw clearly the intimate connection between the written word of God and Jesus, the living word of God. And not only that, Matthew himself was a disciple of Jesus who lived and walked with him for all the years of his public ministry. And Matthew ultimately decided to place all his hope in Jesus as Messiah, a Messiah worth living and dying for. So he's an excellent person, Matthew is, of whom to ask, what can we expect when we're expecting Messiah? And in today's passage, we'll look specifically at that question as it relates to a man named Joseph. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So when we first encounter Joseph, he is in deep personal crisis. As you may know, uh, in first century Israel, the marriage covenant of Jewish couples was structured in such a way that Joseph at this point had already entered a legal contract of, of marriage with Mary. Uh, this arrangement had already been formalized with the payment of a dowry. Joseph in this passage is already referred to as Mary's husband. Um, if he had died in this period, Mary would be regarded as a widow, not a maiden in the community. But on the other hand, the marriage had not yet reached completion. The betrothal stage often lasted around a year. The final completion of the marriage had not been marked yet with a public ceremony. And most significantly for this passage, Joseph and Mary were not living together yet, and they were not having sexual relations, as it's emphasized in verse 18. This was before they came together. Even though they were already legally bound in the first stage of marriage, it would have been both immoral and scandalous for them to be sleeping together. And yet, Mary is found to be pregnant. We're still, Mary's pregnant, and Joseph knows he's not the father. For Joseph, this doesn't look like a miracle. This looks like a disaster. The woman that he loves and has pledged himself to, a woman he knows to be devout and godly, seems either unable or unwilling to just cope with reality. She's not saying she's a victim of a violent assault. She's not asking forgiveness for a moment of passion. Instead, she's putting forth a story that is literally unprecedented in all of human history. Joseph, like millions of skeptics through the centuries, simply can't believe it is possible for a virgin to conceive a child, and he's facing a terrible dilemma. 
verse 19. Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So there's a real tension hidden here between justice and compassion. According to Jewish law expressed in Deuteronomy 22, adultery during the betrothal period is not just a personal tragedy, it's a crime, and one for which execution by stoning is the maximum sentence. Now, not everyone found guilty of adultery uh, received that maximum sentence. It was actually pretty rare for things to go that far legally. But the point is that it would have actually been unjust of Joseph to just ignore or overlook a crime just because of his personal connection or affection for Mary. Justice that shows favoritism to friends or family is not justice. It would be a little like the CEO of a company discovering that the accountant has been embezzling funds from the business and deciding to overlook it because they're brothers. And Joseph was a just man. He's known as Joseph the Just by the early church fathers. On the other hand, Joseph is also compassionate. He may not have understood what was happening with Mary, but he was not willing to add to her shame. And so when we first encounter Joseph, he is feeling torn between these competing claims, the claims of justice and the claims of compassion. So he decides to divorce her, but to do what he can to avoid shaming her publicly. It's maybe not a satisfactory resolution, perhaps, but it's the best he can manage. What more can you expect from Joseph? This is a real question. Joseph had the best of intentions. It's likely that Mary had given him the good news that the child she carries is the Messiah, but he doesn't yet believe. How do we enact justice and compassion when we don't believe Messiah has come? How does this affect our expectations of Messiah? I imagine that many of us here today have felt intense pressure, even within the last week or month, to declare a position on this or that matter of compassion or justice, and have wondered how the presence or absence of Messiah affects things. Now, I want to say the primary focus in this passage is Matthew's work of identifying Jesus as the promised Messiah. That was the pressing question for his original audience. And I think for him, Joseph's struggle to reconcile competing claims of justice and compassion takes second place to that. However, Matthew is specifically referencing Joseph's dilemma. He could have easily left that out, and therefore I believe we're free to press in hard to see what do scriptures teach us to expect from Messiah regarding these claims? How did Joseph's relationship to Messiah affect his attempt to live a just and compassionate life? As Matthew, the writer, had seen firsthand all throughout Jesus' life on earth, people frequently related to the Messiah by attempting to co-opt him into their own strategy for distributing justice and compassion. The Pharisees did it, the zealots, the Roman soldiers, the hungry masses, even the disciples themselves. Everybody had their own expectations about what Messiah ought to be doing. The world then, like the world now, was full of people who wanted nothing but the severest justice for the sins of their enemies and nothing but the gentlest compassion for themselves and their allies. And they wanted Messiah to fall in with their agenda. The Gospels are full of events and conversations where Jesus was pressured 
to abandon his allegiance to his father's perfect vision for justice and compassion and serve instead the interest of this particular group or that special cause. It's likely you felt this pressure too. Wherever people are unwilling to submit to the father's full vision for justice and complete compassion, they end up demanding that everyone submit to theirs. And it is always a lesser vision. There are a couple, of exa- or a couple dozen examples out there, easy to hand, but there are some closer to home inside the church. For example, some camps within Christianity insist on upholding strict biblical standards that pertain to personal moral behavior. Drinking, swearing, fooling around are strictly forbidden, but all that stuff in the Bible about caring for the poor and oppressed, that's for those social justice types, cue the eye roll. The other camp flips it. If you're going to be the right kind of Christian, you must posit yourself as a champion of the poor and ruthlessly purge yourself of racism, sexism, and systemic oppression. But all the stuff in the Bible about sexual ethics or refraining from drunkenness or avoiding unwholesome talk, that's for the pious old dinosaurs, those boomers, cue the eye roll. But this crazy dichotomy will not hold when Messiah comes into our lives. There can be no privileging of this kind of justice over and against that kind of justice or privileging compassion for this type of person over and against that type of person. Jesus the Messiah hates the systemic misuse of power, and he hates personal sexual sin. Yet he ate with prostitutes, and he ate with tax collectors. He was compassionate to the woman caught in adultery, and compassionate to those like Zacchaeus who abused his political power and oppressed the people. Be on your guard against those who would pressure you to restrict justice and withhold compassion to suit their own limited human agenda. Nothing merely human can stand against the one who's coming into the world. Joseph did the best he could to unite competing claims of justice and compassion, but he was in himself really too limited for that. So if you are disheartened by the wildly imperfect, approximate justice of human beings, if you are alarmed by the paucity of compassion that you have to offer your enemies, if you are discouraged by the inadequacy of your own good intentions, take heart this Advent. The Messiah has come and is working out his purposes. You don't have to resort to either angst-filled desperation or detached fatalism. You don't have to limit your hope to a particular strategy or political outcome. You don't even have to have a lot of faith in your own wisdom and your own ability to reconcile uh, justice and compassion in your own life. Messiah has come to earth, and perfect justice and perfect compassion flow from him alone. Witness how the Lord steps into Joseph's dilemma in time and space. Verse 20, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And boom, Joseph's struggle to unite justice and compassion is resolved not with an imperfect compromise of competing claims, but by believing the revelation that came from God and by acting in accordance with it. 
a child conceived by the Holy Spirit was coming into the world, and this child alone among all the peoples of the world is fit to hold pure holy justice in one hand and rich, tender compassion in the other without letting go of either. Joseph had just received news of the one who alone is capable of saving us. This leads us directly to the next thing we can expect from Messiah. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord told Joseph what to name this miraculous child conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Yeshua, meaning to rescue, to save. I've already alluded to the expectation of the Jews for a Messiah, the anointed one who would right their national wrongs and establish political peace over the whole world. So what's a little unexpected here is that Matthew has added a phrase to the description he will save his people. Matthew adds, from their sins. Jesus will save his people from their sins. This is a new twist, and you can bet that it is intentional. Matthew knows the Old Testament scriptures intimately, and he is deliberately expanding on the scope of the long-awaited salvation and what to expect from Messiah. Remember, by the time Matthew was writing this gospel, he had shared life with Jesus all during his public ministry. He had heard Jesus teach. He watched what Jesus did. He saw how Jesus treated people and healed and loved and shepherded them. And then Matthew came eventually to understand the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension. Matthew's life was changed utterly by the advent of the Messiah, and he understood spiritual realities that had not been clear before. Namely, that the scope of the Messiah's rule is not merely exterior and temporal, but also interior and eternal. The salvation Messiah brings touches every facet of existence, hidden and visible, now and forever. When we expect Messiah, we can expect him to save us not merely from the circumstances that arise from sin and trouble us, like a broken marriage or a broken political system, but to save us from sin itself. Let's look now at verse 22. There's more that we can expect from Messiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We can also expect Messiah to be God with us. If I could tell my 10-year-old self one thing about what to expect from God when I face the suffering that inevitably enters every life, it would be that Jesus became a human being like me, not only to save me, but so that God could be with me in the here and now, in present suffering. In the very last verse of the very last chapter of his gospel story, Matthew returns to this truth. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every human life involves suffering, but the presence of God through the Holy Spirit changes the nature and the quality of our sufferings and our joys by his presence with us. When I think about this reality, I remember a medical procedure that I had to go through not long ago. 
an older doctor was mentoring a younger intern who's actually performing the procedure, and I'm really glad that doctor was there. I had to lie flat on my back on an examining table, and first the older doctor instructed the intern to raise the angle of the table under my back just a bit, explaining that the more height the patients have, um, the less helpless they feel. So the intern did that, I'm like, ah, oh, she's right, that does feel a little better. Um, but what was even more meaningful was that when the young intern became, began the really uncomfortable, we'll just say painful, procedure, the older doctor moved closer to stand right next to me. She tucked my leg right up against her side and put a reassuring hand on my knee so that I could feel the warmth of her body pressed against me. And I tell you, as soon as she did that, I could feel tension leaving my body. I still had to have this procedure. It was still super uncomfortable, but the caring presence of that woman changed the nature of my experience. Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us, present to each of his children in all our experiences, good and bad. So, Messiah unites justice and compassion in a way that far exceeds any merely human capacity to do so. He saves us from sin. He comes to dwell as God with us. And finally, when Messiah comes, we can expect him to recruit us ordinary, flawed human beings to help him accomplish his purposes for the world. Let's look at these final verses, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The angel of the Lord brought not just an announcement, but a command. Joseph was recruited, heart, mind, and body, to participate in the saving work of Messiah and the work of God through history. Not only is it impossible to co-opt Messiah into serving a lesser agenda, it's the Messiah's plan to co-opt us, in the best possible sense, into participating with him in the glorious work of his own glorious purposes. The first half of Matthew chapter 1, the passage that immediately precedes this one, is a genealogy of Joseph. And we may well ask, since Jesus or Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, and Matthew himself is very clear on this, why bother with listing Joseph's ancestors? Well, as I mentioned at the top of the sermon, Matthew's main purpose here is to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, Savior of the Jews. And it was known that Messiah would be of the line of David. Therefore, if this Jesus is Messiah, he must be part of the line of David. And for Jesus to be part of the line of David, his father, Joseph, must be part of that same line himself. Marriage, Mary's lineage was irrelevant for this purpose. So Jewish identity was inherited only through the mother's line. So if you had a Jewish mother but a Gentile father, you were not considered a Jew at all. But your tribal identity within Judaism must be established through the father. Trouble was, of course, Jesus had no earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. If they ran a DNA test on him, it would be just Mary's genetic material. So not only was Mary's participation in God's plan of salvation crucial, Joseph's was as well. 
in order to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would be of David's line, it was necessary for Joseph to legally accept Jesus as his son. His participation in God's work is crucial. And what a precious and precarious idea it is for God to insist on inviting us to participate in his mighty works. The incarnation required Mary's participation in God's plan. The fulfillment of scripture required Joseph's participation. This is the way God has chosen to work. The roles that you and I and Joseph and a million other nobodies are called to play in God's plan is almost always small and hidden, but no less powerful and significant for all that. Participating in the work of God meant a radical change in every part of Joseph's life. I'll read again. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. The message of the angel about Messiah changed Joseph's mind. He understood now and believed now something new. The message of the angel about the Messiah also changed Joseph's heart. Be not afraid. Joseph, believing in the coming of the Messiah, was no longer fearful. And the message of the angel about Messiah changed what Joseph did with his will and with his body. Understanding that this was a miraculous conception, Joseph abstained from marital relations with his wife until after Jesus was born. When the life of Jesus the Messiah intersects with our own lives, everything changes. To fully experience the justice and compassion of the Lord and his salvation from sin and his loving presence with us, no one can experience that and remain unchanged. The Messiah has come into the world. But not just long ago, not just to Joseph and Mary and Matthew, the Messiah has come to you and me, and his purposes are not yet complete. I don't know what all Joseph was able to absorb from the angel's message. The way Matthew relates it, it looks like the encounter with the angel took 15 seconds to deliver his message. It seems improbable that Joseph instantly grasped the significance of the role he'd been entrusted with in ensuring that Jesus would, in fact, be an heir of David. Maybe he figured that out later. Maybe not. But when the coming of Messiah intersected with Joseph's life and Joseph chose to fall in with the commanding call upon his life, Joseph himself was woven forever into God's plan to save the whole world. Isn't that amazing? We don't actually have to even know what we're doing or understand what we're being called to do to be used powerfully by God. We don't have to see how his plan is unfolding in time and space and history in order to contribute to and participate in what he's doing. Sometimes we get a glimpse of how God is using us or using others to bring about his saving plans, and sometimes we just don't. But in the end, our lack of understanding the value of our obedience and how God is using us does not diminish its impact at all. In conclusion, I think if I could choose one word for you to carry with you into this new year concerning what to expect when you're expecting Messiah, it would be the word more. I was thinking a lot when I was preparing the sermon of a sermon Father Aaron preached a couple months ago 
where he talked about having piously low expectations, where we're kind of helping God out by not expecting too much from him. And then Bishop Stewart's sermon last Sunday about anticipating the uh, possible impossible from God. More is the word for us today. Whatever your own history with the Lord has been so far, whatever you are currently hoping for from Jesus, I think it's safe to expect more from Messiah. Whatever hopes you carry for justice and compassion in this world, expect the thoughts and ways and purposes of God to be as much higher than yours as the heavens are higher than the earth. However big or little your faith is this morning in the salvation of God, know that he has promised to save us to the uttermost. However near or far God seems from you today, expect more from his promise to be with you and to never leave you or forsake you through the end of the world. And however much he has claimed, much or little he has claimed of your life thus far, expect Messiah to recruit you and transform you, mind, body, and will, to participate in his plans to reign forever in the peace of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.